You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season nine, episode 12. Anyone reading comments in online spaces is often confronted with a collective loss of empathy. This profound loss is directly related to the inability to imagine the life and circumstances of the other. Our malnourished capacity for empathy is connected to an equally malnourished imagination. In order to truly love and welcome others, we need to exercise our imaginations to see our neighbors as God sees them, rather than confined by our own inadequate and ungracious labels. These words come from the cover of author Mary McCampbell's book, Imagining Our Neighbors as Ourselves, How Art Shapes Empathy. Mary McCampbell is an associate professor of humanities at Lee University, where she teaches courses on contemporary fiction, film, pop culture, and modernism. In this episode, I talk with Mary about her book, and how narrative art serves as an invitation to awaken and expand our capacity for empathy. I couldn't think of a more timely and imperative conversation to share with you at this time. This is my conversation with author and professor Mary McCampbell. Mary, what an honor it is to have you on the Makers and Mystics podcast today. Thank you for being here with me. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I'm excited about our conversation. I am as well. You know, I get a lot of books in the mail these days from publishers and authors that are interested in in being on the podcast, and I try to give attention to each of them. But of course, you know, time doesn't allow me to, to go through all of them. But when I saw your book imagining our neighbors as ourselves, how art shapes empathy. I was immediately hooked from the title. (laughs) And uh, once I got into the introduction, I was like, okay, this is a no brainer. I've got to have Mary on the show. So thank you. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, you begin the book with the phrase, the imagination as a means of love. Mm -hmm. And then you go on to quote, Graham Greene's 1940 novel, The Power and the Glory, and you talked about hate is a failure of imagination. And that is such a powerful statement to me that hate is a failure of imagination. You know, and I love what you said earlier when you were talking about how imagination helps us to enter into the stories of others. You know, it helps us to transcend our own borders, our own perspective or vantage point in the world. And that really does take creativity, imagination, as well as humility. And uh, I'd love to hear you speak into that a little more about the imagination as a means of love. Yeah. Well, humility is such a key. I'm glad you said that. That's such a key word. Um, with this, but yeah, that that Graham Greene quote. <laughs> oh, that's powerful. <laughs> I mean, I have to give credit because I first heard it. I used to help organize the Festival of Faith and Music at Calvin, was then college, now university, and Greg Wolf came and spoke, and he he quoted that, and it, it stuck with my mind. I'd not read Graham Greene, you know, this was years mm-hmm. ago, and so then reading the power and the glory and knowing the whole story, um, and I'll just. If I can, I'll just give a, a tiny 
snippet of what that the novel that the main character is nameless he's called the whiskey priest <laughs> and he is um this is set during a time in mexico when it was illegal to be a catholic and he was a catholic priest who'd gone underground and other priests you know they they could they were um they either had to leave the country or they had to leave their religion or they were going to get killed um, and so this priest chooses to go underground because he's like, I'm a priest. That's who I am. I've been called. I can't do any different. At the same time, he's a bad priest. That's what he keeps saying about himself. He's an alcoholic. He has an illegitimate daughter. So, you know, anyway, so he's in prison at one point and he meets this pious woman. And the pious woman reminds me of, in, of a Flannery O'Connor character. Mm-hmm. Just unbearable you know and he talks about the sin of piety like this oh that this kind of this is one thing he can't stand and she's so cruel to him and she even tells him it'd be better if you were dead you know because Mm -hmm. he's a bad priest and that's the moment in the novel when green you know writes when that he had to pause a moment it's that i that act of contemplating he paused and he looked at her and, you know, the quote is basically when you see the lines on someone's face, when you look in their eyes, and it says, you, when you see the image of God in another human being, it's impossible to hate. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Hate is a failure of imagination. So mm-hmm. I think the point green and the whiskey priest, and again, it's amazing that whiskey priest is, seems to be such a failure as a priest. At the same <laughs> time, his capacity for love is more Christ-like than a lot of the pious people around him. And he's endangered his life, you know, for it. So that that idea that there's something about pausing and taking the time to actively look for the image of God in another person. Mm-hmm. So, and he's there, and he looks in this woman's eyes, and then he begins to feel sorry for her, because thinking, you know, where, like thinking of her story, like why is she so hateful? Why is she so miserable? And yeah, it's almost a kind of father. Uh, they forgive them. They don't know what they're doing kind of moment, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which she, of course she knows what she's doing, but there's a sense of, there's a whole story that's made her the way she is. And he has pity on her. And he says, hate is just a failure of imagination. So again, it's part of the action of love perhaps is that you have to pause Mm -hmm. and actively seek looking for the image of God in another person. Yes, and I think this is such an important discussion for our time. And even I talked about this in an earlier episode with Show Baraka, and he and I talked about how the middle seems to have eroded in in many ways. And there's such an echo chamber uh, for many people, or even I could use the word tribalism in some ways. But I've often thought of the arts and thought of the artist as the architect of hope for our generation. I say that a lot. And I think that one of the things that your book points out is how we as artists and creatives can begin building bridges and rebuilding bridges building uh, inroads of empathy, as you talk about a lot in your book. It made me think one of your chapters is titled Empathy for the Wretched and Glorious Human Condition. (laughs) 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 And uh, for good or for ill, you know, I can relate to this. There there is a wretchedness and a gloriousness to it all. Yes, that's uh, Pascal. I mean, you know, that's uh, from Blaise Pascal's Ponce's, where he talks about 
it's like that kind of, I talk in the book about, it's like a pendulum swing. You know, it's, it's kind of Paul saying, I don't do the thing, or Paul, and then it's echoed in the tree of life. I don't do the things that I want to do. I do the things that I hate. Yes. You know, I yes. have, I have, you know, there are, there are good desires and there are good things within me, but there's that battle, mm-hmm. um, that internal spiritual battle. Um, mm-hmm. And it's like in looking at the lives of others, we have to remember that they are also in that battle that, mm-hmm. that, you know, there, there's, there's a sense of we have to take to time to imagine and then recognize that others are just as complex as we are. Exactly. We, we have a tendency to flatten other human beings. This is why I think that really bad, heavily commodified formulaic art is, is can almost be, <laughs> it's damaging it's it's very damaging and right. and because it's not yeah it's teaching us to see other people as formulas or as one dimensional right and i you know that's one thing that i'm very passionate about is allowing the arts especially uh well let me say advocating for the arts especially artists of faith to express and to to feel the freedom to express the full messy ugly complex, contradictory nature of the human condition. And I think that in a lot of faith circles, that is disturbing, or it's harder for people to understand what good is coming out of the grotesque or what good, how, how does this depiction lead us to a greater understanding of the kingdom of heaven or some of the more, you know, spiritual values that we hold as a faith community? But the arts really have the ability to reflect that complexity that you're talking about. And I'd love to hear you speak into that from your perspective, how the arts can help us create empathy for the wretched and the glorious human condition. Yeah. Well, I first just want to mention, I mean, I know she's talked about too much, but it's because she's so amazing, of Flannery O'Connor, the way she, because when she (laughs) talks about sentimentality, and I gave a lecture once called The Sin of Sentimentality, that there's a tendency, and I see this a lot in like Christian quote art, there's a tendency to want to sentimentalize. That doesn't mean you can't have emotion and feeling, but sentimentalism, O'Connor talks about it as if it's, I mean, she basically says that it's kind of like you're trying to, you're almost showing that we can kind of create heaven on earth. Things aren't that bad. We don't need that much help. (laughs) You know, that within 30 minutes, everything can turn around. Um, And and it's it's not real, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's it's, it's that idea that, um, you know, all Christian art should be suited for children Mm -hmm. uh, because... Um, you, you wouldn't want to hit on anything that's going to be disturbing or sli- on the on the R rated or whatever. But but she basically says this is an insult to to cry to Christ. I mean that that if we don't want to really accurately show our need for Him, so I think that that relates. And yeah, she has. There's a great quote that some people think that that Christianity is a warm electric blanket when in reality it's the cross, Mm. you know? Uh (laughs) So there's this need, like we're desperate. Mm -hmm. We have a desperate need. And so I think, you know, that chapter that you mentioned, I was trying to go into works of art from a C.S. Lewis 
by you know the, my favorite work of his till we have faces to better call Saul <laughs> to to show that yeah just to, they really amplify the goodness and wretchedness within and with all of these characters that of you know I'll just talk about better call Saul for a minute because in Breaking Bad I didn't have much empathy for Saul. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I watch Better Call Saul, you get his backstory and you see the gloriousness, you see the good desires in him, um, and you you begin to empathize with him. And then it, it hurts more to see the road he goes down and the, the fact that he abuses himself and others. And it's, it's like we need to see that whole picture, to be honest, about both about the redemption that we need, but also just just to be gracious and see the struggle that everyone else is dealing with. Yes, you know? yes, yeah. So it's really a call to honesty. Yeah. It's, re- it's really a call to honesty in the way that we handle ourselves and the way that we handle others. And particularly perhaps those that don't think or see the world the same ways that we do. And, um, you know, you you have a section in this chapter called Prophetic Art Resists Oversimplification. And I think some of what you were talking about uh, comes from this. And just to quote you, you say that prophetic art can help us become curious, stretch our imaginations, linger upon the apparent tensions of the, of the human condition. But there's also a great deal of popular art that flattens human beings into one-dimensional caricatures, muting the presence of either the Imago Dei or our fallen nature. I love that. That's a meditation that is well worth our time to give to. Thank you. Well, I want to ask you about the chapter Stories as Mm Self-Reflection. And this really just builds upon what we're talking about. And I just want to say this. I just want to pause and say this for the listener. You have to get this book because (laughs) there's no way, in in the same way that we can't accurately depict the human condition in a 30-minute episode or sitcom or piece of art, I can't fully embrace all the depth that is in this book in a 30-minute episode here, but I really do want to encourage our listeners to pick the book up because I think there's a lot of value there for us as creatives, as artists on this journey of learning how art and faith intermingle together. So anyway, uh, Mary didn't pay me for that plug. (laughs) I did not, and I'm very thankful for it. Yes, you know. But I wanted to talk about this chapter, Stories as Self-Reflection, because in my own life, this past year has been a tremendous time of Mm self-reflection, self-reevaluation, looking at things in my own heart, and hopefully coming to a better version of myself or a more honest version of myself. And so, so much in this chapter I could relate to, Mm. you know, because if we can't look at ourselves honestly, I don't know that we can look at others honestly. Absolutely. And I love that in this chapter, you bring up one of my favorites by Terrence Malick, of course, The Tree of Life. Mm-hmm. I'd love for you just to speak from that a bit and how stories are a means of self-reflection. Yeah. I mean, just to go with the Terrence Malick, I mean, that the, the, the father character in The Tree of Life, I mean, played, by, played masterfully by Brad Pitt, is just... 
I mean, a jerk. I mean, here I am saying don't use labels to oversimplify, but that's our tendency would be to be like, what a jerk, what a tyrant, what a, he just seems so cut off from any sort of tenderness or self-reflection or empathy. And he's very much a kind of Nietzschean, you know, survival of the fittest. I mean, he's, it's interesting because in an earlier chapter, I talk about a raisin in the sun, which is, it's so different, but I'm thinking in both of these stories, there are men that think that they will prove themselves as men by providing for their family. Hmm. And again, not that it's bad to want to provide for your family, but it's like, that's what's defining them is the money side of it. Right Right now, of course, it's very different in A Raisin in the Sun because you have a black man and a white supremacist culture who thinks that's the only way I can be seen as a man. Whereas Mm -hmm. in The Tree of Life, you have a very privileged, white, you know, middle class Catholic man who is thinking, yeah, this is, but he's completely ignoring I don't know, his wife and children. Um, and yeah, you just really can't stand this character. But then he has, it's like when he loses his job, sorry, spoiler, but I mean, that, that movie's been <laughs> a long time. And yeah. it's kind of like, even if you get a plot point, it doesn't really matter because yeah. <laughs> it doesn't really matter that much. I mean, it does, but um, he loses his job and he finally realizes it, it's kind of like the thing that's been his idol um, mm-hmm. is taken away mm-hmm. from him and it breaks him. And mm. I should have said this in the book. I don't know if I did or not. <laughs> but, uh, but, and this is when he says, I can see the glory. It's like when he has this moment of seeing the kind of darkness in his own heart and yeah. seeing what he's done, then he can see the glory. There's that beautiful yes. quote about, I see the glory all around me in his own children, but also in creation. And mm-hmm. I can, I can kind of compare that to, um, I open the intro, is it the introduction or I talk about the poem by Coleridge, who is very angry um, because he's broken his leg and the friends who came to visit him um, have gone off and done all the things he planned without him. And so he's really mad. But then the moment when he starts to empathize with his friends who love nature and are in the city, you know, and, and he starts to think, oh, they're having fun and starts to appreciate that. Then he begins to see the beauty of nature all around him. Like he can see the glory. So it's kind of like when you see the ugliness within you, the things you need to repent for, the ways that you are broken, then it's like, it it allows more light in, you know, it's more capacity for um, seeing the glory. I love that. That's a very Terrence Malicky language, you know? Yes, yeah. <laughs> it also reminds me of the Leonard Cohen quote, I believe. You know, what is it? Um, the cracks, that's how the light gets in, mm-hmm. you know? Uh-huh. Absolutely, yeah. Well, you said in this chapter, and I'll just quote the book again, but you said that self-transformation comes in the act of submitting to the mystery, and empathy comes from recognizing the presence of both of these mysteries in every human being. Mm. And I just thought that was beautiful, beautifully said. Thank you. Yeah, that's the mystery, because I think there I'm talking about, because Roy Anker, who was a film critic, or uh, he was an English professor at, at, at Calvin, talks about how the, the film deals with the mystery of suffering. Yes, and know, the mystery uh, of beauty. And the mystery of beauty, because at the beginning of the film, you know, someone's died, the mother is crying out, why have you done this to me? I don't under, and, and the film never gives you the answers to suffering, but it shows that 
beauty is an even more powerful and deep mystery. Yes, yes. You know, in this season of the podcast, I did an artist profile on Simone Weil. Oh, yes. You know, and and so much of her work dealt with suffering, but she also dealt a lot with beauty. Yes. And, you know, I think she said something to the effect that the Christian faith doesn't necessarily explain suffering, but it enables you to find purpose in the midst of suffering. I believe Mm -hmm. that's um, something close to what she said. And I find that true about so much of the Christian story, even when you were talking about the cross earlier. And I've, it's always fascinated me how, if you look at it from a human perspective, it's, it's, it's horrendous. It's yeah. uh, a, a, an innocent, bloody, beaten, naked man in front of the, the whole world that did nothing. You know, there's nothing beautiful about that. Mm. But then if you look at it from a spiritual perspective and you see the sacrificial love of God poured out for humanity, you see suffering and beauty taking place in one moment in time. And I think some of the imagination and the empathy that you talk about in this book can help us to self-reflect in a more compassionate way, as Mm -hmm. well as find empathy for our neighbor in a broader, more um, holistic way, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I really do think, you know, I give the example of David. I'm thinking also you and Show Baraka, just I listened to the podcast and you were talking about David a lot. (laughs) David, (laughs) you know, being so... uh, Lying to his own sin. And then how the prophet Nathan comes and tells him a story in order to pull him out of that. Yes. And so that idea of stories as self-reflection. And I give the example in Hamlet of the story being acted out that basically is a reenactment of the murder, the central murder, you know, that's happened in the background of Hamlet and that convicts one of the main characters. So I'm just thinking about how many times have we seen a work of art or read a work of art and it's kind of pulled us out, like it's shown us, it's exposed us, it's read us. Just as we're reading it, it's read us. That's right. Um, It's very powerful. Yes, I love that. I love that. Well, we have just a few more minutes and I have like 30 more questions to ask. So, (laughs) but... uh, One thing I want to ask you about is your chapter, Empathy for Enemies, and that's such strong language, you know, and, um, but again, talking about living in this time where it seems like the middle has eroded. In fact, um, here's a little uh, sneak peek. I'm, I'm thinking of starting an additional podcast and titling it The Radical Middle. Oh. And, uh, you know, and, and dealing with tensions, whether it's beauty and suffering, but, yeah. but specifically dealing with the tensions. But I think that this idea of empathy for those that are not like us yeah. is, is such an important concept for this time. And it's also something that the artist can really champion, you know. And so I'd love for you to speak into that chapter a bit for us. Yeah, I mean, you know, that chapter really hinges on the the truth, I think, that, you know, the, the love of enemies is at the heart of Christianity, that the sacrifice of Christ is the greatest act of empathy we've ever seen, you know, mm. to, be, to, to surrender power, to become like us, to feel what we feel, to weep for us, and then to die for us. And... You know, scripture says, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. And, you know, it's that moment when you think how horrible it is when 
you're being falsely accused or someone doesn't believe you or someone does violence to you. And again, that's something that Christ, all of this happened to him in the most extreme form. And so, but that's the, also the hardest part, I think. (laughs) And to me, I don't know about you, but in the past few years, it's been the hardest to me for me to empathize with those who don't show any empathy. Mm, that's mm-hmm. a real trick like especially yeah. like the religious people sure um i mean i keep going to matthew 23 which is really helpful you know because G- jesus is like calling i realize okay this is nothing new that there are people that use the name of god to try to gain power etc cetera, etc cetera. but then at the end of matthew 23 the way he basically kind of laments that you know he try he, he wants to bring them he wants to embrace them. He wants yeah. to, you know, he, he wants them to come to him and to believe him. But I, I, I one not a, a plug for one novel that I talk about, which is uh, one of my fa- And I'm in Vancouver right now. So I'm really thinking about this artist, Douglas Copeland, because he, he lives here. Um, but Hey Nostradamus is so fascinating hmm. because it is the, one of the central characters um, is just a religious bigot and a jerk and a horrible human, mm. you know, and the, and the person writing the novel is not a Christian, mm-hmm. but I don't want to give too much away, but <laughs> in the end of the novel, this is a character that actually becomes redeemed, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's like, you don't even know if you want, it's kind of like, wait a minute, I wanted him to be the best. <laughs> it's kind of like, it's kind of like you're looking for him to always, and I'm thinking about when we, don't like someone or they've wronged us or they're just a jerk. It's like, you want to look for things to, you know, it's kind of like scrolling through social media, doom scrolling, but it's like doing that with a person, you know, like <laughs> you look at what they did, see what they did. Um, whereas I don't know. I mean, like Paul was Saul, he was a terrorist basically. Yeah. And like, I don't, I don't know all the, there's no one that is past the grace of God and past the mm. point of being able to be redeemed. So yes. but it's, it's, we're so limited and it's very hard to carry that, that reality in our hearts and minds. Yes. Well, you even talk about that in uh, who is your neighbor or who is our neighbor chapter. Yeah. And, and of course the, uh, the story that Jesus told about the, the good Samaritan as, as we call it, it really showcases that. I don't. I don't think that uh, without some digging around, we don't understand quite the situation that Jesus was uh, portraying in that parable. You know, mm-hmm. with with the Samaritan and just the uh, socio-economical and racial tensions that were in that act that he was actually going past. And that's one of the beautiful things that you're you're pointing out. And I'll tell you this: I, for one, am grateful for that. Uh, redemption not being beyond anyone you know <laughs> no i'm no i'm i'm very grateful for that too and the the other point about the good samaritan that is kind of mind blowing is socioeconomic difference racial difference but also religious difference yes yes is what's amazing i'm just i just it's kind of fun to think about how mad those religious leaders were when he shows them an example of what it means to be a good neighbor. And it's not them. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And of course he's not saying, he's not saying Judaism isn't the way he's saying you've missed the point. Yes. It's it's, and and look at this, this person that you would 
quickly judge mm-hmm. and he's been more compassionate I than love you it. have yes. and it's like yeah i mean that, that right there is a little a little theological lesson in common grace you know? yes yes jesus's parables are an example of masterful and poetic subversion yes absolutely (laughs) absolutely well i have one last question for you and i want to start again by quoting the book and this is from the conclusion and it's in the section titled the arts as a means to agape love Mm. and your first paragraph here is one of my favorites in the book and it says The decision to take time to read, watch, and listen to the stories of those who don't fit our comfortable molds is a sacrificial act of love. In seriously engaging these stories, we must resist the comfort of familiarity and the lure of simple stereotypes. Instead, making space for childlike wonder and curiosity about the unknown other, made in God's image. Mm. Love it. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. Talk to me about the arts as a means to agape love. Yeah. I mean, it's this sacrificial and I'm, I'm really kind of riffing off on, I, I, I quote, uh, from MLK talking about, uh, you know, agape love for one another, because I, I, and I think agape love implies a kind of sacrifice because it is, and the word you used earlier, humility, Mm-hmm. that it is an act of sacrifice to, I mean, that might sound kind of silly. I mean, of, of course there, MLK is talking about a context with such extreme sacrifice that is very physical and kind of Christ-like in the sense of not lashing back out at your enemies, but on a much smaller, smaller, but still significant level, it's the act of taking the time to, learn the story of someone else who doesn't, isn't going to just make you comfortable. Isn't just going to pat you on the back and say, Oh, see, I was right all along. (laughs) (laughs) And so agape love. Yeah. It's it's a, it's a kind of sacrifice. And I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, one of my favorite novels and I talk about it in, in the, in the book is um, what is the what by Dave Eggers. I love it. Yes. Yeah. Such a good novel Um, about a Sudanese refugee. And it's a book, it's a novel about the importance of storytelling and listening to stories. And Valentino Achak Dang, who was a, one of the quote lost boys, you know, one of the young men that walked hundreds of miles across the continent of Africa because of the Sudanese civil war, and I'm just thinking about how when that was going on a while ago when and we saw Lost Boys on TV and you'd see a little news blip and you'd think, oh, that's so horrible. That's so sad. And you do feel powerlessness like, oh, and so it's, it's not it's a good thing to feel that sense of compassion and to feel sad. But it's, you know, typically we just turn and then go and watch. America's Next Top Model or something. I don't know. You know, <laughs> you go to, you go to the, something else on TV and maybe, mm-hmm. you know, it, it takes your mind. I, I said that because as much as I talk about all this wonderful art, I do have a, 
I do have a thing for America's <laughs> Next Top Model. But anyway, <laughs> but which I shouldn't have said that about though after watching the news. But it's, it's the truth though that you watch the news with all these horrible stories and then you can turn to something in a way it's an escape. It's something mindless mm-hmm. and, and yeah. it's something vapid and yes. scary. <laughs> but there's something about a 500 page long novel, which is the length of that, to sit and have to like, really enter that story, really think through those hard questions of a fellow Christian, Valentino is suffering, you know, the the hard questions at the heart of like, why did this happen to him? And what did it feel? And what does it say about God? What does it say about our faith? And, And you're sacrificing lots of time and you're sacrificing emotional and mental energy. So yeah, and you're having a conversation with someone that you might not have had access to before, someone coming from a very different specific situation. So I, I think that, yeah, and I like the way Jamar Tisby talks about how studying history is a kind of activism, but I think that can also be related to literature um, because also, I mean, to me, activism, any kind of activism should be built on love and it should be built on understanding the needs of other people um, and you know, wanting to do something to, to, to help them rehumanize. Yes. You know, after being so dehumanized. And yeah, so those are some thoughts on that. <laughs> Amazing. Mary, thank you so much for joining me on Makers and Mystics today. I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. I've enjoyed it and I've followed what you're doing for a while and I was really excited when you reached out to me. So this is this is a wonderful conversation. And how many more wars till they will cease? How many poor folks die of disease? While we the wealthy sit at our feast, my brother's crying, I cannot breathe. Oh. Thank you for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. For additional interview segments with Mary McCampbell and other Makers and Mystics guests, please visit patreon.com slash makersandmystics. I want to extend a heartfelt thank you to our monthly contributors. You enable me to continue the production of these episodes. If you're currently not a patron and enjoy these weekly conversations, please consider joining our creative collective at patreon.com today. For a small donation, you'll receive additional content, access to our private online community, and most importantly, you'll encourage artists of faith around the world to keep creating. This podcast was produced by me, Stephen Roach, with music contributions from Jessamine Day and Luke Vandergriff. See the show notes of this episode for links. We'll see you again next week, and until then, keep creating. The world needs your art.